Good evening, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tectonic. My name is Mark Hurst. I'll be your host for the next hour here on WFMU. Freeform Station of the Nation from Jersey City in the great state of New Jersey. I have a really important interview for you this evening. This is with Nita, Farha- Nita Farahani, author of the book, The Battle for Your Brain, Defending the Right to Think Freely in the Age of Neurotechnology. Uh, this interview is just a hair longer than uh, my interviews usually are, so I'm gonna get right to it in, in a couple minutes. But I just wanna tell you, this interview, uh, as Olivia was saying in, in the um, in the segue there a couple minutes ago, um, this interview is about brain surveillance. And when I say brain surveillance and mind mind reading technologies, I'm I'm not hyperbolizing, and I'm not saying this is uh, some possible dystopian future that Silicon Valley is considering. Uh, this book. The Battle for Your Brain talks about technologies that have already been deployed that are designed to surveil your brain state and go beyond that in further iterations. And if you have followed this show at all over the years, you are well aware of the surveillance capitalist business models of the most powerful most influential, richest corporations in the history of humanity, all based on the West Coast of the U.S. right now, have a deep and abiding and urgent desire to find and collect more surveillance data from you in order to render that data into profit. These are surveillance into profit machines, these trillion and two trillion dollar companies and they have put cameras everywhere and they've put microphones everywhere and they've put spy devices on people's front doors and in their kitchen counters and they have spy devices in everybody's pocket or often as often as not they're not in a pocket they're in the palm of someone's hand and they're walking down the sidewalk in Manhattan looking down at their surveillance device all of this surveillance data is flowing back to these big tech companies and their government partners, I should add, the government, uh, government here and governments around the world are, are in close partnerships um, with these companies. But at some point, there comes a, a plateau of the surveillance data, and these companies need more growth. You know, their, their one motto is growth at any cost. And the, the field that has not yet been fully tapped is your brain and they are finding ways to extract more and more data out of your brain and uh, and we get into this maybe a little bit but also to complete the feedback loop to um, actually manipulate your brain state but we'll get to that later first we're going to talk about brain surveillance then we'll talk a little bit about brain manipulation this is dead serious okay this is not This is not a conspiracy. Again, it's not some sci-fi dystopia that I'm uh, just concocting. These things are happening right now, and it's really important that we at least know what's happening. Awareness is the very first step before we can mount any sort of response of, of resistance. So please listen carefully to this interview I've got with Nita Farahani. And uh, if you find it helpful and informative, tell your friends, tell your family, tell your coworkers to listen to this and or uh, get a copy of this book, The Battle for Your Brain, and learn themselves what is happening in this new surveillance age as these companies look to your brain data. Let's listen to my interview now with Nita Farahani, author of The Battle for Your Brain, here on Tectonic on WFMU. Nita Farahani, welcome to Tectonic. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on the show. I'm really excited to talk about your new book, The Battle for Your Brain, Defending the Right to Think Freely in the Age of Neurotechnology. This book covers the promises and perils of neural surveillance and modification. In fact, you divided the book into two main sections called Tracking for Neural Surveillance and Hacking for Neural Modification. 
I thought maybe we could talk first about the tracking. You write in the introduction, with our DNA already up for grabs and our smartphones broadcasting our every move, our brains are increasingly the final frontier for privacy. Now, I've talked about both the DNA surveillance and a lot, a lot about smartphone surveillance on this show over the years, and only a little bit about brain surveillance. But when I've brought it up to friends, they often say, oh, Mark, that's some sci-fi dystopia you're always on about. So I'm glad there's this book to tell us (laughs) that, as you write, our brains are increasingly the final frontier for privacy. Nita, what should people know about the threat to our privacy from current neural surveillance technology, just what's out there today? So what's already out there today are headsets that people are using that look like, they look sort of like a futuristic headband that you wear across the forehead. And they have electrodes that are in them, dry electrode sensors that pick up primarily electrical activity in the brain. So as you think, as you do a math problem, as you feel joy or uh, are bored, all of that is represented in brain states through firing of neurons and characteristic patterns that give off tiny electrical discharges that can be picked up by these sensors and decoded using software that's powered by machine learning algorithms and increasingly generative AI algorithms. And um, the idea primarily that these do right now, what they primarily provide right now, is um, basic brain state information. Are you in a state of meditation? Is your mind wandering? Are you bored? Are you engaged? Um, Can you improve your focus? There are also some devices already on the market that use um, something called functional near-infrared spectroscopy. These also look the same. They're just a little headband you wear across the forehead. They beam infrared light through your brain to pick up uh, blood flow changes in your brain because as you do anything that you do, there is blood flowing into regions of your brain and out of regions of your brain using oxygen as um, a particular region of your brain is more active. And again, using software, that information is decoded. What's coming very rapidly in just the next few months are taking those brain sensors and putting them into multifunctional devices. And so I already have beta versions of earbuds that allow you to take conference calls and listen to music or listen to your favorite podcast or radio show like this one and have your brainwave activity that is being tracked at the same time. Similarly, headphones where the soft cups around your ears allow your brain activity to be picked up while you, again, do all the things that you would do with headphones, watch your movie and have brainwave activity that's decoded. And then within a couple of years, um, Meta plans to introduce its multifunctional watch that has brain sensors that pick up brain activity as it goes from your brain down your arm to your wrist to enable you to start to use your brain activity as the way you interface with other technologies. So augmented reality, where you swipe or type using brain activity that's picked up as your intention to swipe or type rather than actually doing so. (laughs) listeners can't see but you can see nita i i'm trying not to both laugh and cry at the same time trying trying to conduct an interview here i mean well let let me say this just to like (laughs) and i don't want to normalize this right i mean this is a, a big deal but people are pretty used to sensors in their smartwatches and in their rings that pick up their heart rate and their body temperature and even their sleep patterns It's kind of surprising, and it's really just, I think, been technological limitations until now that there haven't been brain sensors that pick up brain activity and that enable people to track everything from their stress to where they focus the best to their attention. We'll probably get into the study that just came out on a few days ago that shows that this technology can now do a lot more, not the consumer-based technology, but, but the continuous thought decoding and like real actual mind reading is now possible with more sophisticated technology. So the difference, of course, between the sensors that are on your watch and on your ring is what it is that you're decoding, right? It's not just how fast your heart is beating or how much oxygen your brain is using. It's what that signifies and decoding that into your mental landscape. Okay. Let's let's just 
Let's rewind. I'm still trying to recover from that list of awfully dystopian devices just a couple of minutes ago before we get to the mind reading that The Guardian and others have, have covered just, as you say, just a few days ago. In terms of these sensors, these are the EEG sensors, right? Well, not just EEG, right? There's also FNIRs, right? So the sensors that are going into earbuds and into headphones are EEG so far because it's harder, I think. I just haven't seen any research. It may be out there on FNIRs happening in multifunctional devices as opposed to um, just as a, a, a band across your forehead. But FNIRs is already portable. Okay. Well, whether it's FNIR or EEG, you, you mentioned the earbuds. And I underlined in the book your mention that even Apple is rumored to be considering putting EEG sensors or some sort of sensor in their AirPods right. and their Apple Watches. That detail really stuck out to me. And whether Apple's going to do it, other companies are already doing it, you're saying. But I again, I mentioned that to friends. I said, you know, there are going to be brain sensors in the AirPods soon enough. They're already in, I mean, so they're not in Apple's yet, but Apple already has patents on putting brain sensors into its AirPods and sensors on putting EEG sensors into the sleep masks and into its AR devices that it's launching. So, I mean, you know, every major tech company, whether it's Meta's acquisition of Control Labs or the Snap acquisition of NextMind or Microsoft and Google's major investments into neurotech, every one of the big tech companies have massive investments or acquisitions that they've made into neurotech because it really is the next frontier for them of being able to collect biometric information and find a new way of, I, I think, interacting with their technologies is to use the brain as the way that people interact with their technologies. This is the thing. When I hear about the growth of surveillance capabilities on the part of these trillion and $2 trillion companies, it does not make me feel warm and fuzzy inside. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned the biometric sensors that people are already using in watches and rings and other devices. I don't even like those, Nita. I think you and I may see those a little bit differently. No, no, I, be, be, I, we don't. I mean, my sister <laughs> gave me an Apple Watch a couple of years ago for Christmas, and I gave it back to her a couple of weeks later, and I was like, I'm good. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. I, I think I, you know, my cell phone already listens to everything that I exactly. do. Exactly. I don't need a watch that is with me at all times, but thanks. <laughs> and and the other authors, journalists, and, and, and other guests I've had on this show, that's typically the reaction. And it's not because we all have the same sort of radical technopolitics. It's simply because we know what's happening to that data. Right. And I feel like if consumers knew, if everyday Americans and people in other countries, we have an international listenership on this show, knew what was happening to their data, these devices would be a lot less popular. I think people would be horrified. Well, I mean, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push back on that a little bit. People's privacy preferences and privacy practices are very different. You know, they say like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe that all of that data is being collected. And then they nevertheless go ahead and do all of the things that they know will lead to the collection of their data. And they say, I don't have anything to hide, or not only do I not have anything to hide, but I don't have any other choice because I really want to use this platform or it's really convenient. Or they'll say things like, I like the targeted advertisements I'm getting. It's making my life better and happier. So it's okay with me. So I don't know that that's true. When it comes to brain data, we can talk about the surveys right. that I've done on that. But Okay. So it's mixed. I mean, I, I would argue that when people are given a choice, like when Apple gave people a choice, do you want to be tracked by Mark Zuckerberg? Almost everyone clicked no. No one opted in to Zuck's creepy tracking. And so Zuck has been having to... Is that true? Is that what the data shows? That yes. Like everybody's opted out? It was... I'm going to they give it as opt-in or opt-out? It was opt-in to Zuckerberg's tracking. That was yeah. Apple's So that's shift. the difference, right? So, I mean, when you have people opt-in, it's like 20% opt-in. When you have people opt-out, 80% of them remain in whatever the surveillance system is. So, I mean, part of it is preferences and part of it's design of how people can actually reflect their preferences. This is what I'm driving at with this brain data. At least we, we can agree some percentage of people out there would not want to be tracked if they knew what was happening to their brain data. 
What, on the other hand, is the pitch from the companies? What, what, what do they say is going to be so great once they start surveilling our brains through the AirPods? Well, let's back up even further for a moment, which is you're assuming, which is a fair assumption unless we change something, that if people use these devices, that it means opting into surveillance by companies and governments. And I think that is the track that we're on unless we make choices that are different. I'm hoping we're going to make those choices that are different now before this goes to scale across society. So that isn't the choice you're presented with. And instead, now I'll give you the pitch, which is instead what you're doing is tracking it for yourself and not sharing the data with other people. So consider this. Physical health, longevity is increasing. People are overall getting healthier and they are living longer. That's not true for mental health and neurological disorder. Um, mental health and neurological disorder continue to rise while physical health and longevity improve. And that means that you have more than a billion people worldwide suffering from mental health and drug use disorders, more than 300 million who are affected by depression, 55 million who are suffering from some form of dementia, with 60 to 70% of them suffering from Alzheimer's disease. Stress levels are you know, off the charts and increasing. Overall, we have a mental health crisis of pretty epic proportions across the globe. And part of that is that we don't have effective tools for people to be able to quantify and treat their own brain health and wellness. And we haven't been given insights into that. Like if you have a really high heart rate, you can know that right now. You can know it by doing a quick check at your doctor's office. You can know it by wearing one of these watches or devices, but you can't know virtually anything about what's happening in your own brain. So I think the beginning way in which most companies will pitch these devices, like the earliest ones are like, here's how you can meditate more effectively. Here's how you can train your brain to have greater focus. Here's what cognitive enhancement looks like. I think what really will lead to a wider scale adoption by people is here's how you can take better control over, over your brain health and wellness. Here's how you can see your stress levels. Here's how you can see, you know, increased risk of cognitive decline over time. These are the things that you can do to try to counteract it. Tracking your brain can give you the earliest insights into dementia and other forms of, you know, mental health or degenerative disorders that with greater insights and with greater tracking, we can actually treat and help stave off. I think that's the original pitch to it. And then as the technology and the, like how quickly outputs can be translated from the brain, because it's part of the limitation right now to make it an effective interface, then it's going to be, you don't need to type uh, with two thumbs on your phone, you can just think about typing. Or isn't it dumb that you have to like swipe uh, a mouse in order to move around the screen? Or isn't it crazy that you have to use a dumb joystick to operate around in virtual reality or augmented reality? You can just think about doing so or move naturally. And those movements will be translated into the way in which you move around um, in those different environments. And so I think it starts probably with normalization around brain health. And then it's like, oh, and also you can do this and then you can right. do this and then you can do that. And then you're wearing them 24 seven, as opposed to just for a few moments a day. And then that dystopia that you're imagining and I'm imagining in the book, right, is that your brain data is commodified and it's not like your heart rate. It's not like your sleep patterns. It is you know, your thoughts and feelings and biases and, you know, emotional reactions and the content of information that you keep secret and private that's now up for grabs by companies. We should mention that you are professor at Duke Law School, right? I am. I'm a professor of law and philosophy at Duke. That very well-structured cogent argument that you just gave describing the pitch from these companies, just perfect. And I wanted to let people know that you're... <laughs> I am not making the pitch, just to be absolutely clear, right? I, I am not making the pitch. I'm explaining the pitch. <laughs> I understand, but I thought that was a good opportunity to introduce what you do outside of, of writing this important book. Thank um, you. The pitch, I thought you, you described it very well. It's first, look at the health benefits. We have this mental health crisis and so on. And then once it's normalized to say... Don't you hate using your thumb to hit a space bar? <laughs> you can right. just think about it now. Isn't that great? Life is really going to get better when you don't have to use your finger to swipe on a screen. 
more efficient, faster, right. easier, less friction. And this is the same kind of pitch that we've seen for other technologies, largely surveillance-based technologies, because that's what big tech runs on these days. But it, yeah, unlock your phone by looking at it, right? Exactly. That's so much easier. Yeah. And when we get to the implantable chips, we should talk about in a couple of minutes, when people say, why would I want a tech company to drill a hole in my head to put their surveillance chip on my cerebellum or whatever, the tech company says, no, you don't understand their health benefits. It's always mm -hmm. starts with a health benefit. That's the wedge. Right. And if you disagree, and, then they... I mean, if you tell people it's, it's health benefits and you know, what is the thing that you're most afraid of? Like, I was just reading Jonathan Haidt's book, The Happiness Hypothesis. And he said, like, think of the worst thing and the best thing that you you know possibly could think of. And he said, and, and you very well might have thought of like winning the lottery and um, the worst thing being like suffering and locked in syndrome where you have like full consciousness, but you don't have the ability to move or to communicate. And that, you know, is where a lot of this technology started, which is like, how do you solve that problem, which is to enable people to communicate using directly their brain activity when the rest of their body isn't enabled. Um, and so I think, you know, that's where implanted technology starts. But then you have people like Elon Musk who join the party and say, why should that be limited to people who, you know, have locked in syndrome and paralysis? Like we should just all be augmented so that we can just go brain to world. Right, right. And, and to be clear, if there was a way to go full on on medical innovation, I would be all for it. Right. You know, there, there are people with, and you, you write about various conditions in the book that need better intervention, need better technology. Yep. I, I'm a hundred percent for that. But what I am grappling with is that as you build these legitimate and helpful medical innovations, the companies that are behind this inevitably are the ones who say, this is going to be fantastic for our surveillance capitalist business model. Let's normalize this device for everybody on earth so that we maximize our informational asymmetry and our growth at any cost and so on and so forth. And it becomes this, this horrible, possible, horrible dystopia. So, you know, I think the thing is, the tough thing about saying, like, I'm totally for the medical advancements of it, but, you know, if we could avoid these other approaches, that'd be great. That's where a lot of innovation first happens, right? Is people are like, wouldn't it be great if we could do this for this limited market, which is a tiny number of people who are struggling with whatever the condition is. And then you're like, or it'd be really great to have a much bigger market, which would be everybody. And so can we take the technology and make it a mass market product instead of a product just for a few people? And so, you know, assist technology, like speech to text, all of those types of things, right? They start as really well-intentioned, narrow medical application. You mentioned eye tracking as well. Right. Yeah. And then, I mean, I, I just went through the airport and, you know, gave up my iris scan to clear to uh, get through it. Right. <laughs> um, and, you know, you, I know, I, I know. Right. I mean, I understand what I'm doing and I'm like, I just gave a private company my eye tracking. I'm like, holding what's wrong back with my me? rant because. No, no, you <laughs> should. I mean, like, what's wrong with me? Is it really worth the extra five minutes to get through the airport to give up that data? And no, it's not. I have no idea what clear is doing well, with it. But just as a digression, I was just in an airport as well. Yeah. And I show up, and this is the first time I've ever seen this. I have my boarding pass and I'm walking towards the TSA line. And these people from Clear are coming up to me and they're badgering me. It's like at some, I don't know, pushy outdoor bazaar where the vendors are coming up in your face. And they're like, hey, don't you want to save five minutes? Hey, don't you want to? And I'm like, get away from me because it's all additional surveillance. But it's not like a year ago when Clear was off in the corner available for anyone who really wanted to give up their iris. Now they're actively pushing it on people. No, and I mean, so the same story that's, so I was in, I think it was LaGuardia. There was a huge long line for TSA pre-check, um, a huge long line for the ordinary check. I have oftentimes booked a home run schedule to get from place to place. I have one of these home run schedules. There's no way I'm going to make my flight. And this person from clear walks up to me and says, Hey, enrollment takes less than five minutes. We could have you at the front of the line, you know, in 10 minutes, would you like to enroll? And I was like, yes, thank you. Take all of my personal data and um, let's make this happen so I can get on my flight. 
that, you know, it's like, I'm, I'm one of the people who knows <laughs> the most about all of the terrible downsides of surveillance technology, company use and misuse of it. And I was like, yeah, I want to make my flight. And, and that's the trade people make. <laughs> And you know, that's a limited time opportunity because as soon it's like TSA pre-check that used to have like three people in the line. Now it's everybody. And then then as soon as they get everyone's iris, then everyone's going to be in the clear line and there will be no other option to go to a non-surveilled line. Interestingly, that's true at Raleigh-Durham now. Most days, if you go through the clear line, it takes longer than it does to go through the TSA pre-check line. And there's more people in the clear line. So I've had clear now for a couple of months. I get to RDU and I take a quick look at both lines and I'm like, nope, going into the TSA pre-check line because there's far fewer people in it. (laughs) If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. My name is Mark Hurst. I'm your host. We are halfway through my interview with Nita Farahani, author of the book, The Battle for Your Brain, Defending the Right to Think Freely in the Age of Neurotechnology. You heard our digression about surveillance at the airports, but really the conversation is about surveillance from big tech companies that is targeting your brain state and soon enough, even your very thoughts. If you'd like to join in the live listener discussion on our chat board, go to WFMU.org, click playlists and comments. Or if you're listening to an archive or podcast version of this in the future, go to tectonic.fm, T-E-C-H tonic.fm, and click the playlist link for the May 8, 2023 show. Let's get back to my interview now with Nita Farahani on Tectonic on WFMU. Bringing it back to brain surveillance, you know, once these devices are all sold to us because of all the convenience and the the amazing ease of use that our, our lives will experience because these devices, when everyone has it, then they're just going to turn the screws. Well, so let's let's stay on clear for a moment with the brain. Okay, so one of the things I write about in the book is that a lot of these biometrics, even iris scans, are ultimately potentially not as secure as other functional biometrics. And brain biometrics are hidden. They're very difficult to replicate. So you can imagine another company, like, you know, you have Clear, but now you have like Blear, right, for brain. And Blear says, like, if you have, you know, if you're wearing the earbuds that track your brain activity, all you have to do is walk up. You will have registered singing your favorite song in your head. You just need to, you know, pair that with like Bluetooth, pair that here, sing your favorite song, and you get to go right through with like identity authentication. That's not a crazy possible future because brain biometrics are already being developed for authentication purposes by governments worldwide in partnerships with governments and private companies. I think brain biometrics will become something that are used in workplaces and in high security facilities. You know, why not? You've got clear, why not have the company that decides to do it with brain biometrics? And then you're wearing your little earbuds that are tracking your brain activity, you know, for convenience, for everything. And let me bring up a scenario that you write about in the book in that employees in an office are all wearing their mind reading or, or, or just not even reading their thoughts, just reading the brain states, the brain states that we can get today from devices. Mm-hmm. And there's this ambient surveillance system, whether it's bossware or something else in the office. A lot of companies are now installing these to just gather as much data on employees and the environment and people's activities and speech and everything all at once. Mm-hmm. And it then correlates their brain state data with everything else that the surveillance system is picking up in the office. And then you get things like this. Nita, I need you to come talk to the boss. The boss is not happy because when the boss was giving their launch presentation yesterday, your brain state data showed that you were not enthusiastic. I mean, sure, you were nodding and clapping and smiling, but you were not enthusiastic and the and the boss wants to check in with you. Maybe you need to be fired because maybe you're disloyal. Um, I'm just giving that one example. You wrote- Yeah, a, a, or like you're showing greater boredom at all of these meetings and you're a high flight risk. 
I'll give you two company examples on this. Like one company, I gave a presentation on the use of neurotech in the workplace to track attention and fatigue, like already happening in a number of workplaces worldwide and kind of futuristic applications of this. And a company comes up to me afterwards, a CEO of a company and says like, we could be a great use case for you. We're doing this. We've already tested it out on thousands of employees and we're tracking a whole bunch more things than you even realize. Boredom, to your point, engagement, you know, mind wandering, making managerial level decisions about work from home versus non-work from home policies based on what we're seeing from the brain data. And I was like, oh, okay, great. Um, you know, that would like, you might be miss the dystopian part of the conversation, right? And then, you know, on that front, another company reached out to me on LinkedIn recently to say, you know, I've heard you talking about the stuff. I read your book, would really love to talk with you because we really want all of this data, the surveillance data about employees, because we're commoditizing this and providing it to companies because it's so hard. There's so much turnover these days. And so we need these metrics to be able to identify people who are at high kind of flight risk. And your example of like, you were clapping, but you were actually bored. What's going on? And you see this repeatedly over time. Like that person's flagged as being a high flight risk for either intervention or for firing, right? Either way. And the person said, like, you know, can we chat about this? Because we think that this is incredibly important data, but I was given a little bit of pause reading your stuff and and thinking about what you were saying. Like, it seems like you're opposed to this. Yes, I'm opposed <laughs> to this, right? Um, so, you know, this is happening already. This isn't, you know, th these aren't futuristic scenarios. You know, it's not happening at scale, but it is happening already. And, and we need to be grappling with, you know, okay, on the one hand, companies want the data, right? And they want to be able to track employees and they want it, whether to prevent flight risk or to make sensible choices that actually align with data about work from home versus work in the office. But there also needs to be dignity for the worker and there needs to be a place of trust and flourishing for individuals to have work continue to be meaningful and to have it not feel like an Orwellian panopticon. Right. And so- how do we do that? How do we find the balance where companies can have access to data that is meaningful and matters for their decision making, but doesn't step into really creepy, intrusive grounds? I just, I hear about this stuff and I wonder, how did corporations make hiring and firing and management decisions over the past, I don't know, 500 years? It must have been impossible for them to do that without Orwellian surveillance technologies. <laughs> and now when we have these technologies, the businesses say, we need these. This, These are essential to our management capabilities to make a, a happy and productive workforce. And you go, that's just not true. You know, if they, if the companies well, I will. I mean, I will say in defense of them a little bit, which is the workplace and workers have changed, right? I mean, the digital era has changed, not just how much surveillance is being used, but what the expectations of employees are, how long they are with people like you used to hire somebody and they would work their way up through a company, you know, from the front desk office to the, you know, senior management position. And now people primarily lateral and hop between businesses and don't have those sort of longer trajectories within a single company. So I, you know, I think the nature of work and the nature of the relationship between work and workers and workplaces have shifted over time. I don't think that the answer is you need to surveil your workers to figure it out. But I would say like the last 500 years, maybe a lot of things have changed, not just how they made decisions, but you know what the expectations of modern workers are. In response to all this surveillance, Nita, in the workplace and, and elsewhere, you write very passionately about some changes that we need to make in order to protect dignity, as you say, and also just generally try to avoid this Orwellian dystopia. And you're drawing on this idea of human rights. Here's what you write about freedom of thought. We need to update our understanding of the international human right to freedom of thought to include our right to think without threat of thought surveillance and without our thoughts being used against us. So you're saying there is an already established freedom of thought. And I think if I remember from the book, that was more from a religious angle. People can believe whatever they want to believe. But here we're, we're in a new era where freedom of thought means something much expanded from that. I think we need to fundamentally recognize that not just neurotechnology, which I think puts the finest point on it, but all of these technologies are really aimed at our brains and mental experiences, trying to understand, intercept, 
um, change our brains and mental experiences. And so what we fundamentally have to do is update our understanding of what liberty means, which I think means cognitive liberty. And then that directs us to updating our interpretation of existing human rights. And those human rights are one, the right to mental privacy included within privacy. Two, as you know, the right to freedom of thought, which would protect against interception, manipulation, and punishment of our thoughts. And the third is self-determination, giving us a right to cognitive liberty, a right to access and change our brains if we choose to do so without, right, the from, uh, in, without interference with our mental privacy and our freedom of thought. And freedom of thought up until now has been interpreted narrowly to really apply to religion and belief. But by the text of it, it's not meant to, right? It's meant to do a lot more. It's just that it wasn't really threatened in the same way before. And so we can, you know, go with rights we already have and just need to recognize and apply those in ways that are updated in the digital age. You made a very impassioned argument for why we need to protect cognitive liberty. I wanted to offer a little pushback, and maybe this is just me being cynical, but throughout the book you're saying, and I agree with you, companies should do things this way. Governments should regulate things this way. We should do this. We should do that. And after a while, I started circling all the shoulds because I wanted to look at what they were and how many of them there were because as I read them, I thought, well, Nita, you're right. They should do that. But again, possibly being a cynic, I don't know what the chances are. I mean, just looking at the last 10 years, our track record of of all the shoulds and should nots that these companies have faced, they've gone and they have just steamrolled our rights and our privacy and all the societal norms that we had around data already. What do you think is the chance that these shoulds are actually going to have some teeth behind them and there is going to be any kind of break on companies and governments that want to exploit this data from neurotech? It's a fair question. And I would say first, I'm heartened by the fact that anyone who will listen thinks like, yeah, I don't want that. Like that's not a world that I want, which is a world where even my brain is surveilled. Even politicians, especially politicians, have no interest in having neural surveillance, right, of what they're actually thinking. It seems like I've touched a nerve in that way, literally, right, where people understand the stakes. It's harder to get people to really understand the stakes of facial recognition or iris scanning or any of the other types of surveillance technologies that exist. It's not as hard to get people to understand the stakes when it comes to what's happening in your brain and mental experiences. People identify so closely with that, that it at least makes me more optimistic that people see the concern um, and that they're more likely to act on it. Where I'm less optimistic is I think we have to act now. I don't think we can wait for the technology to go to scale in society because Once brain commodification becomes the norm, and to be clear, it's already begun. I write about examples where major neurotech companies are already, you know, entering into partnerships with other companies to allow those companies to have access to the brain data that they've collected, millions of instances of brain activity data of people who have used their devices. So I'm not as optimistic that people will act in advance of the harms being realized fully in society. And then it's very difficult to claw back. And so the question is, given that, right, given that I am optimistic that people understand the problem, I think the solution is a relatively easy one as a starting place. It's not the end game, which is to update our existing understanding of those three interrelated human rights that make up the concept of cognitive liberty is the umbrella concept of liberty. I think my work from here is to help develop a robust set of things that individuals can do rather than just relying on corporations and um, governments. Like what does it look like for for you, Mark, and for me, Nita, to be exercising cognitive freedom? And it is more than just not wearing a smartwatch or a smart device, right? There is a lot more to um, us being able to have self-determination over our brains and mental experiences in a world in which we're increasingly interconnected with technology, increasingly interconnected with and bombarded with digital messaging and advertisements and platforms. Um, And that will only become more so over time. So what can we do 
to cultivate cognitive liberty in our everyday lives as opposed to simply rely on governments to protect our freedom of thought and mental privacy. Okay, we just have a couple of minutes left. Speed round, okay? Elon Musk, he drilled holes in the uh, skulls of monkeys and he implanted brain chips. This is through his company called Neuralink. You also write about companies like Synchron and BlackRock Neurotech. There's an mm-hmm. ominous name. Um, <laughs> what What's for real about these? Are these all just lab experiments or do you think from your research that there's actually going to be implantable chips coming out for consumer use sometime soon? I think that implantable chips will get approved sometime soon for a very limited set of people who are suffering from neurodegenerative diseases or paralysis. To date, there are still a lot of challenges to overcome in that field, from how long can an implant be used to the risks of not just explantation over time, but infection, and how do you get it in there without causing brain damage? The risks are too high for a healthy, ordinary person to be likely to use these devices anytime soon. I think it's both, though, the fact that it will end up in individuals who need it therapeutically, but also the insights that are being gained from implanted neurotechnology that's also going to push forward the consumer neurotechnology field. Because, you know, the deeper into the brain you go and are able to pick up electrical activity from the brain and then use pattern recognition and AI advances to decode what that means, then you can correlate that data and see how much of that can also be recovered from wearable sensors rather than implanted sensors. Okay, next this series of articles that we both saw in the last few days talking about mind reading devices. Is this Mm -hmm. for real? Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) it's for real. And, um, you know, so this was researchers out of Texas who looked at, you know, what can advances with generative AI do since previous classification models to try to decode what patterns of brain activity meant were trained using machine learning algorithms rather than the kind of advances with generative AI. And so adding GPT-1 to the mix, they put people into functional magnetic resonance imaging scanners, which in the past have been used to decode things like images from a person's mind that's represented in their visual cortex, the area that represents images and where we see. And they had in the past decoded simple words or numbers or phrases, but not continuous language, not like whole sentences or stories that you're hearing or that you're imagining. And with a pretty high degree of accuracy, they were able to decode for people what they were, what the stories were that they were listening to, and then what the stories were that they even imagined and constructed in their own brains, and then told the researchers what they were. A couple of caveats about it. One is, it didn't work when they applied the same classifier trained on one person on another person. And two is people could actively use countermeasures, like think of a big pink elephant, and that would prevent the decoding of thought. Answers to those countermeasures, though, are one, the world that I'm imagining is people voluntarily wear brain sensors that they train on their own brain data. And two, Like you're not going to spend your entire day while you're wearing these brain sensors thinking of pink elephants, right? Because you have voluntarily chose to wear them. And so what that means is this world is possible. And these headsets may not be voluntary. I mean, if your employment is contingent on your wearing a brain reading device, people may just, well, this is, you know, it's a job. Yep. And when you calibrate the device, you know, or the device is just picking up, like, you're hearing stories all day long and the, you know, they're able to pick up and, you know, passively be able to pick up brain activity and train it on your particular brain. I I appreciate that the researchers wanted to look at the implications for mental privacy, but I guess I'm just too dystopian. I sort of immediately saw how it nevertheless could be misused against people. And speaking of misusing this technology against people, you have a whole chapter called Bewilderbeasts that talks about the weaponization of neurotech. As you write, the nations of the world are in a race to weaponize neuroscience. Uh, And this is nothing new, as you write. CIA's MKUltra program and others have done horrible things with people's brains over the years. Governments everywhere are looking for ways to use the newest technology to do that. Um, My question here, would you say you have two or three nightmares a night after writing that (laughs) chapter? Um. I say I see the dangers everywhere, and whether that's sleeping or wide awake, 
Um, I see the dangers everywhere. And, you know, on the one hand, I get excited of like, wow, what an extraordinary breakthrough, um, like the article we were just talking about. And on the other hand, I have nightmares kind of immediately because my brain is so well honed and trained now to immediately see what the risks of it are. And knowing that governments are investing so heavily in cognitive warfare is really terrifying. And uh, that's about all the time we have for the interview. <laughs> <laughs> Leaving it on that positive note. <laughs> I just, right. I, I appreciate you doing the research and educating me and now the listeners on what's happening in neurotech. The book is The Battle for Your Brain, Defending the Right to Think Freely in the Age of Neurotechnology by my guest today, Nita Farahani. Nita, thanks again for being on Tectonic today. Thanks so much for having me. Tuning in, you're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. My name is Mark Hurst. I will be your host for the remaining 11 minutes of the show. And then the great Dave Mandel comes on with his show, It's Complicated. It's a prog rock show, and you should listen to it, so stay tuned for that. We just heard my interview with Nita Farahani, author of the new book, The Battle for Your Brain, Defending the Right to Think Freely, in the age of neurotechnology. Uh, you heard us spend a fair amount of time talking about the surveillance that's coming out. It's already here from these companies. A little bit on the rights. As you heard, um, Nita is a law professor at Duke, and so she goes into some detail about the, uh, the, le the possible legal path of... Um, announcing that we have rights, <laughs> rights of liberty, cognitive liberty, rights to think freely, and so on. So she gets, into, uh, she gets into that landscape quite a bit. If you are interested in that and or the surveillance and or the manipulation of your brain, we didn't t talk a tremendous amount about that, but she does get into the, uh, the terrifying uses, as we talked about, in cognitive warfare from governments and also some some possibly good uses of brain manipulation she talks about throughout the book. Again, it's called The Battle for Your Brain. Thanks to Nita for spending time and, uh, and um, coming on for an interview. Thanks also to the listeners who have been posting comments on the comment board throughout the show. Um, and I, I want to I get to a couple of those. But, but first, I want to uh, remind you that I have links up on the playlist where all the comments are at wfmu.org and two of the links that I posted were about the mind reading technology that Nita and I were talking about at the end. Uh, in particular there's this Guardian article from May 1st with the headline AI makes non-invasive mind reading possible by turning thoughts into text. And that pretty much encapsulates the story. It's non-invasive which means that they don't have it to drill a hole in your skull like Elon Musk wants to drill a hole in your skull. Uh, these are fMRI uh, brain readers, scanners, sensors uh, that are able to uh, detect what's happening inside the brain and then correlate that with some other training data. And what comes out is a continuous stream of text as people are thinking about uh, these these words or reading a story. And so that's what Nita was saying at the end. Imagine if you are, uh, if you, for your job, for instance, you're mandated to wear one of these brain sensors 24-7, or at least while you're on the job, um, anything that you think, anything you read, anything you say, anything you hear can be uh, transcribed in a continuous stream of text. I mean, the technology isn't quite there Yet, this was just in a lab setting, and as, as you heard her say, there were some problems uh, with, with scaling it up because of the training data with one person didn't work for someone else and so on. But the, the fact that the technicians are able to, even in a lab setting, get a continuous stream of fairly accurate text out of somebody's brain is pretty chilling. And you know the financial incentives are there for companies to force these devices onto employees 
and and another thing you heard Nita say, we need to make sure that workers have dignity. Um, I mean, <laughs> which is true, of course. Um, I would just turn the clock back a few years and say maybe workers should have had more dignity before they had to wear other surveillance gear. I mean, we've heard a lot about Amazon warehouse workers who are tracked every inch, every second of their activity, uh, even their bathroom breaks and so on. Um, the worker dignity issue has been has been um, a current one for several years given the growth of surveillance technology in the workplace and if and when probably when brain reading devices become more uh, more common that's going to be a much bigger issue so you can take a look at that guardian uh, article there's another one from the daily beast that's that's talking about the same uh, the same uh, uh, research out of texas now uh, on to a couple of the reader uh, comments. Let's see. Um, Carmichael, listener Carmichael says, what if I need to think of my password? <laughs> and it's funny, Carmichael, that you should bring that up. What, what if I need to think of my password? Because in Nita's book, there is a short case study of uh, research that comes out of uh, Cal Berkeley where, and I want to describe this research because this really shows where this technology is headed. They got two subjects who knew they were going to be test subjects and their brain waves were going to be read. There was no deception there. And so they, they outfitted these two test subjects with uh, brain sensors of some sort, and they had the subjects play a video game. And so these two subjects were engrossed in this video game. Maybe they have the joystick in hand and they're watching the screen where the, the video game is being shown. Unbeknownst to the test subjects, the the technicians who are running the test are flashing subliminal images uh, that are too quick for the test subjects playing the video game to consciously be aware of. Okay, so maybe, uh, I don't know how many frames per second a video game is, 30 frames per second or something, maybe one of those frames out of the 30 is a number or an address. And by seeing the reaction of the test subject's brain to these subliminally displayed images, they were able to see which images of the, of the many that they were showing, unbeknownst to these test subjects, which of the images did the subject's brains light up with recognition about. Does that make sense? So as a subject, you're just playing the video game. You don't see anything at all. But unconsciously, your brain is seeing these images and reacting to them more or less, depending on whether they recognize it, whether it's, it's something that has to do with you. And the punchline of the whole thing is that the researchers, get this, were able to uh, come away with one of the test subjects' PIN for his credit card. You know, the credit cards have a, have a little PIN code attached, so they were able to detect that without his knowledge and they were able to find out his home address. Uh, I'm just reporting what Nita reported in her book about this, this research. So uh, I'm, I'm not exactly sure the mechanics of how they, wh what images or what address they were uh, flashing, but the, the end result is that they were, they were at Cal Berkeley, the, the researchers were able to extract information from a test subject's brain without the test subject being uh, aware that this was happening at all. It was all an unconscious response and it was all non-invasive. No hole in the head. They were just wearing uh, some sort of a headset. And that's the future that we seem to be headed into where there is a great financial incentive for companies to gather more surveillance data. Uh, there's a great incentive for governments to uh, to have access to people's mental state. And there's a great, huge incentive for hackers and malicious actors, maybe malicious governments or, or criminal networks, to gain access to people's brains without their knowledge. And so Carmichael says, what if I can't think of my password? Well, don't worry, Carmichael, because other people will be able to find your password for you even if you can't think of it yourself. Whether they give it to you or just use it for their own purposes, I guess it depends on who's doing the snooping inside your brain. So that's something to look forward to. Um, there's a lot more that I could say, and I kind of wanted to say, I was considering doing a part two of this on brain surveillance, but we'll see what, we'll see what I come up with for next week. I want to thank everybody for showing up this evening. And, um, oh, I do have some advice. 
and that is to avoid Apple, abandon Amazon, forget Facebook, and whatever you do, get off Google. This is WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope in New York City and Rockland County at 91.9 FM and online at WFMU.org. And I want you to stay tuned for the great Dave Mandel, and it's complicated. And, you know, uh, there's only one, really, there's only one song that I could possibly end this show with. I know there were a couple of different suggestions, but, you know, this headset not only is going to be able to read what your thoughts are, but eventually it is going to be nudging you with thoughts that you should have and emotions that you should have. And in in the end, it's going to end up being a happy helmet. That's going to make sure that you are happy all the time. And uh, so here it is, friends. Have a great week. And Dave Mandel will be up in a minute. Hello, boys and girls. This is your old pal, Stinky Whizzleteats. This is a song about a whale. No. This is a song about being happy. That's right. It's the happy, happy, joy, joy song. I don't think you're happy enough. That's right. I'll teach you to be happy. I'll teach your grandmother to suck eggs. Now, boys and girls, let's try it again. If then you ain't the granddaddy of all liars, the little critters of nature, they don't know that they're ugly. That's very funny. A fly marrying a bumblebee. I told you I'd shoot, but you didn't believe me. Why didn't you believe me? Happy, happy, joy, joy, happy, happy, joy, happy, happy, joy, joy, happy, happy, joy, happy, happy, joy, joy, happy, happy, joy, joy, happy, 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 joy, joy, joy. And that's the way we do it. It's 7 o'clock here at Listener Supported WFMU. This show is, it's complicated. I'm your host, Dave Mandel. I'm here every Monday at this time. Thanks for joining me. Some bookkeeping. (laughs) CD shuffling. We're going to start tonight's show with something. Hold on a second while I start my online playlist. Perfect. We're going to start with some music from France. You can hear a track from a piece from a group called, uh, usually, their name is usually abbreviated as STPO because it's too long. Even for French people, it's probably too long to say. But I'll say it once. La Société des Timides à la Parade des Oiseaux. The Society of Shy People at the Bird Parade. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's the literal translation. These guys are great. And they, I would say, blend... Uh, they sound a lot like the group Etron Fu, who I've played and talked about on this show. Uh, cr- crazy, uh, sort of beef and beyond beef and French, French group, active uh, from the late 60s into the 80s, very influential, Etron Fu. Um, there's a bit of them here, as well as some of the French uh, symphonic stuff, groups like Artzoid, the sort of Prague, post-Prague um, symphonic groups like that. 
So here it is, a track from the group STPO. Tel était élimé d'un cerceau de vent. 
Tel était abîmé d'un cerneau de pan. Tel était arrimé au caveau d'un fan. Tel était ma rime et l'inca vint devant. Quel était d'abîme, cet inca m'en reprend. J'en ai bu ma bille, c'est de l'argent fondant. Quand bébé babille, c'est bebalan béban. Tel était élimé d'un cerceau de vent. Tel était abîmé d'un cerneau de pan. Tel était arrimé au caveau d'un vent. Tel était ma rime, la cabane de vent. Quel était abîme, c'est un camion reprend. J'en ai plus ma bille, c'est de l'argent fondant. Bébé Babi, c'est 